Hi, and welcome to the Code First Girls podcast. I'm Anna Brailsford, the CEO of Code First Girls. Now, odds are that you've interacted with social media at least once today. We did a survey of our community in 2020, and it turns out that about 70% of women in our community log on to Instagram more than twice a day. People love their social media accounts, and this is reflected in the big company's financial success stories. Despite consistent news stories of data leaks, hacks, and even allegations of misleading users, the value of social media giants continues to grow. At the moment, the value of the top five social networking brands is estimated to be over one trillion and rising, with very few new competitors entering the market to disrupt the scene. But that might be changing. And today I'm joined by Freddie DeSieber, a co-founder and CEO of Revmo, uh, which is a brand new professional networking platform pushing the boundaries of what we can expect from online networking. Freddie, uh, a big welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Anna. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, can you tell me a little bit more about your personal career journey and how you ended up starting Revmo? So I think uh, really from the start, it was the very definition of, of nonlinear. Um, I've been passionate about computing and technology and problem solving since I was uh, we and uh, was lucky enough to have moved from England to California, uh, not only for the weather, but also with the, the first dot-com boom, uh, Silicon Valley in sort of the mid to late 90s. So I had uh, some exposure to computer networks and again was fascinated by how you could make one computer talk to another. Um, and my early sort of summer jobs were all around technology. I took a degree in computer science, uh, but doubled it with criminal justice, having thought uh, that I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I found out it, uh, that at least in America, it'd be nothing like Rumpel with the Bailey. There'd be no great speeches, no perorations. And so uh, ended up pursuing computing as my main degree and did a double major in criminal justice. I joined uh, Goldman Sachs first as an intern um, and then uh, full-time in our information security group, having grown up around networks, uh, sort of understanding how they work and understanding how to break them was the first leg of my career. And then I fell sideways into our investment banking division as a what uh, the firm called a strategist. So essentially a programmer and quantitative person embedded in the front office. And uh, there we built models to and, and wrote software to, to sort of supplement what we're doing. My last job was, and this is where the dovetail into Revmo comes in, was working with our what is effectively our sales force for investment banking. And a lot of that was connecting who knows who um, and uh, who's connected to which transaction and uh, and path discovery. Uh, my co-founder, Ben Coleman, uh, who has a background also at Goldman, but at Google and um, in the startup world, and I met up uh, in the bad old pre-COVID days and had a, uh, had a dinner in London, which turned into a lot of napkins with a lot of ideas. And shortly thereafter, Revmo was born. What we're aiming to do with Revmo is change the way uh, people professionally network. And we can dig a little bit more into that, but we are effectively a secure online professional networking platform. I find all the best business ideas start off with a napkin, back of a carton, a couple of drinks, and maybe some dinner. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 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 I, I cannot possibly confirm whether several bottles of wine were consumed that <laughs> evening. I think the best ideas are formed in that way. Um, Freddie, what an amazing journey. Let's talk a little bit more about Revmo. 
Can you tell me the difference between RevMo and LinkedIn, for example? Absolutely. So there, there are really three key differences. Um, one, when you uh, post your profile or a comment or anything else on LinkedIn, um, it's immediately the property of LinkedIn and it's publicly searchable. Two, you're equally connected to everyone you're connected to on LinkedIn. And we have the view that in both the professional and the personal world, that simply isn't true. Um, you and I have just met, and although a, a good professional relationship will likely um, emerge, we're still very much acquaintances. Yet if we were to connect on LinkedIn, we would be equally connected as my longtime mentor. And yet that's that's simply not how things work. And then the, the third thing, uh, we... Uh, take the view that in the professional sphere, privacy is really important. And that unfolds in two ways. One, when you have professional relationships and contacts, you you have the du dual challenge of wanting to make those selectively available, but not wanting to broadcast to the world wh who you know. And then two, if you're looking to be introduced to someone, you don't want that to be a matter of public searchability. Uh, and so we solve those with Revmo. We, one, encrypt all of our users' data before it hits our system. So we can't see our users' data, which therefore also makes the ironclad guarantee that we can never sell our users' data. So we take the view rather differently than a lot of other companies that our, our users are there and they're paying to use the platform and to be connected and to expand their professional reach. They are not using it for free and then marketed to uh, advertisers, customer segmentation people, uh, or recruiters, uh, which other networks have a business model of doing. And two, when you connect with people, if you want to meet someone in their network, we'll show you that there is a path, but we won't say, for example, and we won't surface to the user that Anna is the person who connects you. So that when I say, send an introduction to meet Shireen, um, your uh, fabulous commercial director who, who originally linked us up, you can see that I want to meet her. You can approve it. You can deny it anonymously, or you can redirect to someone else on your team who can make that introduction. But if you and I uh, were meeting later that day, you could rest assured that even if you said no, I wouldn't know that it's you who said no. Taking away that fear of failure really opens up the potential for a, a new type of professional networking. I'd say one other place where we're different is uh, we're data neutral. So your network is not in any one system. For example, your LinkedIn contacts represents one slice of your professional life. Your customer relationship management system represents the slice of your life uh, where you have business relationships with people and active transactions. Your personal contacts represents another slice. Um, uh, transactions you've done or deals you've participated in or conferences you've attended is another slice. And it's only in combining those slices that you really get a whole picture. But to get people comfortable with the idea of combining that information, you really have to be open and transparent about how you're protecting their data. So it really appears that you've put sort of privacy and user control at the heart of everything you do at Revme, particularly in the way that you've built the product and the way that you're encrypting data. What have you learned from uh, more recent news stories uh, where this hasn't perhaps happened? Um, so it's a great question. Um, let me preface it by saying the reason we chose that, even before the, the recent news, um, is Ben and I wanted to build the sort of company that we wanted to do business with, one that was open, honest, and transparent, 
that was discrete, that analyzed what it needed to analyze to deliver the value it promises to deliver, but that doesn't shamelessly mine people's data for insights. However fascinating some of those insights may be, I think with the new generation of tools, we've only ever asked, can we do something? And we haven't really asked, should we do something? As far as lessons learned, I'd say that the the current generation of platform users is becoming aware of the privacy implications of what they're doing. GDPR, the European Privacy Directive, and CCPA, its California doppelganger, have really brought to the public consciousness this idea um, that you might actually be entitled to the ownership and the and, and the right to decide where your data are distributed. That was originally quite a fringe idea uh, exposed by and, and promulgated and propagated by people who were sort of early pioneers of the internet. As, as a generation of ad-powered internet came along, that idea was discarded as both unorthodox and unworkable. As compute power uh, uh, has become cheaper, as economic models have changed, as business plans have changed, that idea is now coming somewhat more to the forefront. And it could be as simple as being a little bit put off by going to buy, for example, a basket of strawberries at Ocado, and then on a travel website being advertised, uh, you know, seeing an advertisement for more strawberries. Well, hold on, those two things aren't connected. Why on earth you know, does one site need to know about the other? And then there's a, you know, there's a deeper undercurrent of when you look at the the larger tech companies, they're making an extraordinary amount of money from reselling, rehypothecating, cutting, chopping, and transforming your data. Um, and you have to wonder if the value equation is properly balanced. Um, for example, you mentioned uh, Instagram. The cost of hosting those pictures in the service is minute compared to the advertising, the cut of influencers' sales, the um, the the economic powerhouse that that that, that the Facebook um, engine provides. I think people are becoming a little bit more aware of the imbalance of value given versus value received. And if they're not, um, they may one day one day be. And we'd like to be there to propose a new balance of of give and get. Do you think we're really at a point here where the the consumer is ultimately going to swing the balance of power? Do you think that the the consumer is taking control at the moment? Uh, how long will it take for that to fully take effect? With my rose-tinted glasses on, um, I'd say absolutely. More realistically, I think a segment of the of the consumer population is becoming aware of it. Some of them even care about it. I I think we're seeing less and less of the narrative of oh, well, it doesn't bother me if somebody can see this, but facts are never in isolation. When you click through one of those annoying pop-ups that says, we value your privacy, immediate giveaway that they don't. Um, um, and you know, we, we uh, combine this with other data sources for offline processing. What that means is they've been able to purchase through any one of the data brokers um, uh, an extraordinary breadth of detail about who you are, your purchasing habits, likely be a, you know, a pretty good interpolation of your income level, social and economic sort of status. And they're able to turn that plus whatever you've, you've shared via their platform into an even more valuable piece of data. And I think the segment of people who care about this, especially in the what we've called the prosumer, the professional consumer, and in the enterprise space is growing. 
So is it mainstream yet? Is is privacy orientation the biggest purchasing decision for companies or the biggest subscription dis- uh, decision for people? Maybe not yet, but it's trending. Uh, uh, the, the, the trends are certainly moving that way. I wanted to, to touch slightly on sort of the ramifications um, in the, you know, the wider space on both society, politics, you know, even the economy to a certain degree. Now, I, I particularly look back to, um, you know, when, when Brexit happened, for example, and reflecting on that at the time, I actually felt like I was in somewhat of an echo chamber, um, you know, with all of my sort of contacts saying exactly the same things and not really realizing the sort of the bigger issues and problems. How dangerous is it that we are bombarded by potentially one type of data and we're not actually seeing the full picture here? I think it's incredibly damaging to both the democratic fabric of a society and to the quality of discourse and therefore the willingness to challenge ideas, to only hear your own ideas. You know, it was unusual 50 years ago for a person, for an educated person to only read one newspaper. Um, You typically read a number of newspapers and therefore got a diversity of perspectives. Social media uh, and the very good recommendation engines that say content that is similar that you've seen, you may like, um, does exactly what you've called out. It, It creates echo chambers where you only hear one opinion, which pushes people's opinions further and further apart and into deeper, more polarized, more tribal mentalities that make it very difficult to do what we do very well as, as a species and as a, you know, as a, as a culture, exchange ideas and debate them on their merits and listen to people who disagree with you. The ramifications of that in terms of poor quality of news content, you know, that's fairly well chopped up and fairly content free in most major media distribution channels, um, the lack of of really analytical journalism and a lack of platform for people who are investigative journalists and the knock-on effects to the quality of public discourse, be that about government policy or ideas and, and the silencing of unapproved ideas are all very damaging to a free and open society, which you may feel differently, your listeners may feel differently, but I think is one of the the, the real gems that um, the Western world has, has produced over the last couple of thousand years is a free and open society. I think about um, just, just reflecting on what you've just said. So, you know, the, for example, the power of, in the UK, the power and the history, for example, of coffee houses, right? So, Coffee houses existed for people to debate, for people to sit down with a coffee and, you know, intellectually debate the main issues of the day and to come across different opinions. You know, there's many commentators, for example, that suggest that that coming together of ideas uh, in coffee houses, for example, led to the abolition of slavery globally. Or equally, I'm thinking of the scenes, uh, I watched a BBC drama not long ago about um, you know, the role of Dominic Cummings in Brexit. His role at the very beginning, when he got given this task, he, he didn't, uh, well, the BBC drama suggests he didn't sort of go to social media to analyse what was being saying, said there. He went to the pub. He went to the pub and he listened to people and he questioned people. And that's where he understood and started to realise things were not coming across in the same way that they were on social media. And I think that's true. And, and there are really, you know, I, I see two, two factors contributing to that. One, in social media, it's very easy to leave a debate peremptorily um, when you're no longer either uh, winning or you're out of 
rebuttals, but also uh, it's very difficult to have an interactive conversation. And it's in that interaction that you begin to probe ideas. Um, and, and there's something else about social media, you know, the fact that it's, it's effectively a permanent record of what you said, um, you know, it makes it very difficult to freely express ideas because taken out of context 20 years later, or indeed as your own opinions have evolved and become um, either, you know, more, uh, more or less liberal or more or less free market or whatever they are, um, people are very hesitant to really propound ideas and a, and a 240 character limit in, in one popular platform doesn't make it any easier. Um, but it is really when you catch people with, with serendipity um, and where you're, you're close enough that you can read nonverbal cues and where you're, you're interactively in a discussion um, that I think you get a much truer picture of what people are thinking. And also um, those who, who are very active on social media very rarely represent opinions that are broadly held. They just happen to be the best amplified because they have the most number of followers or because they publish the most. But that, um, you know, that's not, that's not the same thing as representing a broad view of, of, of a society, which is necessarily going to have a, di a diversity of opinions. Freddie, if we can just maybe turn to some of the events recently in the US, I'm particularly thinking of the kind of, you know, the storming of Capitol Hill. I mean, that really demonstrated, you know, the power, for example, of, of misinformation and, and the extent to which people can be manipulated. As you're building Revmo, how are you thinking more proactively about ways to sort of encourage those conversations uh, whilst ensuring, you know, we're not creating something much more insidious here? So, um, uh, first of all, I agree with you, um, misinformation and a lack of respect for facts. It's one, it's one thing to disagree on the analysis of facts, but we're, we're at a funny moment where because things like deep fakes, you've got convincing, convincingly manufactured evidence could possibly exist. We therefore refuse to believe or accept anything as a fact. Uh, or we disagree on facts, and that's one unhelpful, and is is used cynically by lots of people to further an agenda that is not necessarily supported by fact. When it comes to Revmo, uh, what we aren't, is, uh, at least in the current incarnation of the product, is a discussion platform. We are a people introduction platform, and I think grounding our both our value proposition and the offering to customers in that means that we're. One, there's a little bit more accountability because there isn't anonymity once that connection is made. And two, you know, we're not, you don't succeed at professional networking by getting followers. You succeed by being a helpful member of a network who either makes introductions for others or answers questions um, or connects with people or hires people or recommends people uh, or introduces people. And so we're moving away from just the propagation of a short string of text into the connecting of people to do the things that they already needed to do. One thing that, you know, just thinking about this conversation that, that I'm wondering here is, do we need greater competition in the space? Um, and I'm thinking particularly here about, you know, recent announcement, announcements of bringing the back end together, for example, of, of Facebook and WhatsApp and you know the ramifications of this is is this just too homogenized do we need greater competition 
So I'm I'm a big believer, and not just because I run a small startup that competes with established players, but generally I'm a big believer in competition, um, especially competition enabled by open standards. You know, the, in the early days of the internet, you had competing and incompatible standards, which led to stagnated um, development. But as ARPANET and then later TCPIP and some of its near competitors standardized on some open protocols, you had hundreds of manufacturers who could produce hardware to connect computer systems. And all of a sudden, you had an explosion of technology. Um, so we've seen this before, right? We've seen it with Standard Oil. We've seen it with, uh, and these are Ameri- there are examples of monopolies everywhere and cartels everywhere, but you've seen it with Standard Oil. You've seen it with AT&T or, or originally Bell Labs. Um, large central players who, can, who have vertical int- uh, integration tend to stymie competition and therefore progress and therefore evolution. So I, I'm going to give sort of a two-sided answer to your question. Yes, I believe competition is healthier, but I don't, I'm not sure that just blindly breaking up tech companies who hit a certain market cap is really appropriate or is going to get us the outcome we want. But I do think that from a regulatory perspective, both in decreasing the regulatory barriers to new entrants and increasing regulatory scrutiny on on large combinations of companies is probably healthy. Um, And it was part of the the Anglo-American economic model until the 70s or 80s. You know, large mergers were heavily scrutinized and certainly the political wins in the US given the election of a of a democrat president um are, are likely going to push a little bit that way but the the answer is not just the blind application of regulation or executive power um but rather a, a sort of a well thought out framework that that sets some ground rules that make it really easy to compete which then i mean i'm i'm jumping to my next question in my head which is um you know, what do you want for Revmo? I'm thinking, for example, with the way that, that Google acquired Waze. They acquired Waze because Waze were doing things that, that Google maybe couldn't. And I'm just curious, is that something that you kind of see in the future that you can be challenging, but challenging from within as well uh, in relation to the big tech companies? I think anything's possible. Like I said, we structured our network to be both encrypted and data neutral. So there's always a path for that. Uh, I think we'd be incredibly resistant to just being bought to, to be shut down. But if if there's an opportunity to change from within authentically, I think we'd we'd certainly look at it long and hard. Given how early we are, it's it's somewhat premature to think about how we're, how we're going to exit. Tell us something a little bit more about yourself. Maybe some some books that have inspired you, or maybe something that you're working on at the moment that, that's that's quite unique to you. Perfect. So I'm going to give you two things, one professional and one personal. On a professional basis, um, one of the clarifying inspirations for Revmo was a book called Give and Take by Adam Grant that I wholeheartedly recommend um, any of your listeners to to read. It's a fairly short and easy read. Um, and it talks about uh, a world that is divided between givers, matchers, and takers. Um when it comes to interpersonal relationships and the merits of, of each of those and, and how to work with those kinds of people. Um, and that's inspired the behavioral economics behind our platform. Uh, on a more personal basis, I, uh, so I, uh, something unusual, I play a, a rather obscure sport called real ten- real tennis, which is the, the predecessor to the tennis we all know and love that's played at Wimbledon and places like that. 
indoors uh, with a heavy wooden racket. Uh, there are only about 3,000 people in the UK who play at 23 different clubs, but it's enormous fun. And it's it's a little bit like a cross between squash and tennis. And any, any of your listeners who visit um, Hampton Court, I'd recommend just uh, popping in to see a game in action. But uh, And I think one, one observation I'd love to close with is uh, that as programming languages and as technology evolves, um, we're seeing a bigger career space open for people who are hybrids. And by hybrid, I really mean, you know, they've got one skill set as well as technology. And the things that you can do when you've got domain experience that is non-technical um, and you learn just enough programming to be dangerous are truly mind-blowing. Uh, so where programming languages get out of the way and you don't have to be a computer scientist or an information theoretician to write a, um, a, a new software application or to be part of a software team, um, I, I think great things will happen and we'll see some evolution, which is one of the reasons why I think what you're doing with Code First Girls is just so important, you know, bringing people who might not be traditional computer science scientists into that ecosystem is really, um, is going to open up a lot more in terms of what we can do with technology, how we think it might break some of the group think that is so evident um, anywhere in the technical space um, and really enhance the marketplace of ideas that tech was originally founded on. Oh, what fantastic two points to, to end the podcast there. Not only do you play the tennis of Henry VIII, uh, <laughs> but uh, also obviously through working with Code First Girls, we expect some explosive uh, innovation in the future. Freddie, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And to learn more about Revmo, please go to uh, revmo.app and join Freddie and his team as they sponsor and lead a massive open online courses with Code First Girls. Also, they're sponsoring a range of free classrooms and even some of the coveted nano degree places with Code First Girls this year. Thanks so much for listening. Please take a minute uh, and go and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to climb up the recommendations in their algorithms. Um, and it really, really does mean a lot to us. So take two minutes to do that now. Thank you, everyone. Take care.